Happy rainy Wednesday in Southern Ontario. It's uh, Dan Taylor from the ECDEV Network. And we have another great chat today. We are talking about the circular economy and I'll let Bob talk about that and introduce that in a moment. For those that don't know me, I am the Economic Development Catalyst for the town of Innisfil. And I am also a strategic advisor and guide to those in the profession. Primarily what I do is I help people uh, hyper-focus um, uh, improve their personal and professional performance at work. And maybe most importantly, I help them get tangible economic development results. And I also press the magic button at the end of these things and turn this clubhouse chat into a podcast. Over to you, Bob. Thank you, Dan. I'm so glad to have the family together. I know for many of you, you might be new to the room, but Dan, myself and Laura have had a tough time all joining in over the summer. We've had busy summer lives, which is wonderful. Uh, really glad to be here. For those that don't know me, my name is Bob Benhaas. I'm one of the co-hosts here, as Dan mentioned, with my other co-host, Laura Fritz, who I'll ask to introduce herself in a moment. And you are in the EPDEV Network Economic Development Clubhouse. We meet every Wednesday at noon Eastern, and we bring in thought leaders and speakers to share information that economic development professionals or catalysts or just people alongside economic development would probably want to know and really love engaging conversation. We also run regular chats, casual chats on Friday. Friday at 3 p.m. Eastern. For those, again, uh, sorry, my name is Bob Minha. So I work with economic development communities to help them build local digital businesses for their local Main Street businesses. And I'm here today with my dear friend, Erin Andrews. She's going to talk today about circular economy. And, you know, it was for me, it was really important to invite Aaron because I think as economic development officers, we really want to keep on the forefront of what we should be considering when we're thinking of economic development, especially for those of us in perhaps smaller or mid-sized communities. So Aaron's going to share some information on that today. But first, I'd love to introduce our third co-host, Laura Fritz. Laura, please come to the stage, introduce yourself before I hand it over to Erin. Uh, well, thanks so much, Bob. I'm Lara Fritz, and I am an economic development professional for over 25 years and work with companies to assist them with planning for growth and expansion, specifically women and BIPOC entrepreneurs. So if your community is seeking assistance with that, we'd love to chat. And Dan and Bob, always a pleasure to be here with you. And back to you, Bob. Wonderful. Thank you, Lara. Okay, before we get started, Aaron, we have some new folks in the room. So I just want to give a little bit of a layout for the clubhouse room for those that may have not been in a clubhouse room or visited us before. Uh, on, for those of you who are in the audience, you'll see a, a, a hand over a notepad looking icon on the bottom of your screen. So if you're not on the stage yet and you hear something that you want to uh, contribute to the conversation or just ask a question, press that button and that'll allow myself, Lara, uh, or Dan to invite you to the stage to participate in the conversation. Uh, for any of you who are in this room, you'll also see a plus size, plus looking icon, plus sign looking icon. And if you press that, that'll allow you to invite any coworkers or colleagues or, or heck even family uh, to join in on the conversation and perhaps contribute themselves. It's it's super important for myself, Dan and Laura, to have a wide breadth of, of thought leaders and thinkers in here to have a conversation. Um, we don't want to keep poor Aaron having to talk the whole hour. So it'd be really great if we had more people joining in and talking about it. And finally, on the very top of your screen, you'll see economic development and beside it, a green monopoly looking icon, monopoly the game. And uh, if you click on that, that'll allow you to get notified when we continue to run new rooms. Uh, we'll talk about it at the end of today's session, but uh, in the next couple of weeks, we've got a, a flurry of events happening. So make sure you click that green icon so you can stay in touch with everything that's happening. And finally, for our friends on stage, you may already be familiar, but remember when you join us on stage, your mic does go on. So you want to hit mute. And if you want to contribute and you do share something, please remember to try and sign off at the end. For example, hi, I'm Bob, and I'm done speaking. And that'll ensure that other speakers know when they can pile in. But it's actually a really cool accessibility tool because other people listen to us using the Clubhouse app with accessibility features. So that's it for me. I would like to include, uh, take it, send it over to Aaron. Aaron, I would love if you could start with maybe introducing yourself a little bit, and then I'm going to pose uh, the first question to you, if that's okay. Yeah, totally. Thanks so much for inviting me today. Um, 
it's kind of funny we've already talked about or like the the concept of like economic growth has already come up and I'm very excited about that because uh, my goal today is to completely change the way that you think about sustainability and economic development so um, I as Bob mentioned I'm very obsessed with the circular economy um, I am a founder or the founder of uh, Impact Zero, which is a nonprofit based in Toronto. And we work with startup founders and SMEs to essentially um, build circular infrastructure to get their communities living in a more sustainable way. Um, because obviously all of us here are consumers and individuals and we participate in this broader system um, of you know whatever our economy is today and we're kind of at the mercy of the businesses that are available to us and the products and services that are available to us to indicate basically how sustainable we are you know like if we can only shop at walmart and walmart has terrible sustainability practices then there's not really so much that we can do as individuals to change that so i really like to work with the innovators on the ground to basically pilot these new types of business models and new types of um, ways of thinking of business and growth of businesses um, to make it more sustainable. So, um, yeah, that's like a quick overview. We can get into it more. And Bob, I know you said you don't want to leave me talking the whole time, but I totally could talk the full hour about this. Hey, listen, Aaron, I've heard you speak before. We would love it. I just don't want to burn out your throat. And then, of course, <laughs> I have your clients yelling at me. So, for sure. so why don't we do this, Aaron? Why don't we start with framing a discussion around circular economy itself. So when we talk about circular and linear economy, can you sort of talk about what those are, the problems that exist, and maybe talk about where circular comes in that, I'm going to say better is linear, but maybe that's not the right word. Can you start with that? Yeah. Um, so the way that I like to begin explaining like the scope of the problem that currently exists is actually um, by painting a little picture for people. So um, the way that we currently consume by dispose of things is linear because we take things from the planet, we turn those things into products and we throw them away. Ultimately at the end, we might recycle them, but ultimately everything gets thrown away. And um, there's a stat that I like to throw out that tends to shock people, but um, in order to satisfy consumer demand today at the current level that we're buying stuff, we actually need two Earths to keep up with our demand because we're taking so much from the planet and we're throwing away so much simultaneously. So we kind of are experiencing these two problems at the same time um, of needing more resources to build things. So if you think of like the mining industry, right, we're running out of certain minerals or, or whatever we're trying to mine is getting very difficult to access because we kind of took the easier stuff first and now we're kind of stuck at, you know, things that are a little bit harder to get at and it causes it to be more expensive to, to get those things from the planet to turn into products. So we have this problem of running out of natural resources but we also have this problem of having too much stuff and throwing too much stuff away. So the idea of a circular economy is basically to link up that stuff that we're throwing away and, and literally like closing the loop and like turning that line into a circle and saying, how can we take the resources that are currently being discarded and called quote unquote waste um, and how can we actually turn that waste and use it as a resource to then resell, essentially? And how can we get the highest amount of value out of that product to satisfy consumer demands without having to actually take more and more and more from the planet? Because we, when we talk about growth, we're always talking about, like, you know, growing more, taking more, selling more. But, like, who are we taking from, right? If we, if we only have so much of a certain material on the planet we're ultimately taking from future generations. So we need to figure out a way to grow our economy in a sustainable way using what we already have. And that's essentially what the circular economy is. It's a bunch of different tactics that businesses and communities and people can use to essentially close that loop and stop throwing away so much and stop taking so much by seeing what we have in circulation as a resource that can actually be reused really effectively. 
I love that, Aaron. Thank you. And I want to make sure everyone in our audience and on our stage knows that this is an open conversation. So if you want to contribute uh, to the conversation or just ask a question of Aaron, please feel free to do so. You can open your mic if you're on stage or raise your hand if you're in the audience. So that was wonderful, Aaron. So Aaron, if we move into sort of the next situation of um, now that we sort of have an appreciation for this distinction between linear and what circular can do. You know, as, as economic development officers, I'm going to say actually as community leaders, we're all community leaders in the roles that we carry, what opportunities exist to do better? You know, how can we look at, how can we, what ideas can we bring to try and implement these in our community? Yeah, totally. And um, maybe before I get into the specifics, because I'd really like to know um, actually from the people who are in the room, um, I'm curious to know what growth tactics people currently use as economic development professionals um, to see, because I want to be able to like map it back to how most people and how we've historically thought of growth, which is in the linear context, right? Like taking more, selling more. Um, so is there anyone on the stage or even um, who, who wants to come up onto the stage to share kind of what growth tactics they use currently? That's a great question. If you don't mind, I might open it up to Dan and Lara in their communities. Uh, are there particular growth tactics that are part of your strategy? Uh, did you, maybe Dan, did you want to start? Are there, is there something you can share? Uh, yeah, sure. So, you know, that's a really good question. It's, it's, uh, this is such a fascinating topic because, you know, our, our, our economy, our consumption is currently designed as linear, you know, 99.9%, which is, which is part of the problem. You know, I don't know if I have a really great answer. What I can tell you is a few things is we have, um, a, a an accelerator program that I'm going to say is low footprint. Um, and that is primarily uh, critical thinking, uh, technology and software based. I'm not even quite sure, so I'd be open to some feedback on how you would make that circular or not. I mean, I may have a couple of ideas. We have a acceleration space, so maybe there's some ways we could think about that space. We have industrial lands on Highway 400, which is just a main highway for those that aren't familiar with the area. And um, at the moment, it's not serviced with wastewater, it's serviced with septic, but even when, so I guess, Maybe we should talk a little bit about, you know, water, wastewater. Is that circular? Is that linear? Is that somewhere in between? I'd, I'd be open to that discussion. I think that would be a good one. But I'll tell you, um, we, it's not that we're not attracting, but there's demand there. So a company is going to build a new 100,000 square foot facility. And I very much doubt that they are circular. Um, I can tell you we are planning to build a brand new city. Uh, called the orbit based around transit and there's a sustainability component uh, there's been discussions at the table about circular economy um, my guess is not to be pessimistic but i would be i would first of all it would be a big win for us to hit a certain level of sustainability i'd be surprised if we hit a five or ten percent um, circular economy component to that at least in the build I'm Dan, I'm done speaking. I, I don't know that I really answered the question. I think I've put more questions out than I have put answers, but maybe that's part of this discussion. That is part, exactly, Dan, thank you. And thank you for allowing me to pick on you first, because I know that you've always got great answers with the work that's being done in Innisfil. Uh, Lara, do you mind if I include you in the conversation? I know that you've worked across many communities, so perhaps you've seen an example in another community of, of yes. such. Yeah, absolutely. You know, one of the um, exciting opportunities that I had was working for a large accounting firm. And that accounting firm spent a lot of time looking at um, monetizing of waste. And so they were putting together plans for downtowns to take waste and create um this goes well beyond my knowledge but <laughs> to create um an opportunity to take food waste from restaurants for example and have it turn into energy 
Um, and then looking at what the financial implications of that are. And so, you know, I think that's one way that, you know, you're taking what is something that's disposable and you're bringing it back around and to help finance um, the community and that, that downtown core and some of the work that was being done within the downtown core. So I just, I thought that was really fascinating and um, something that I think more communities are going to start to look at is how do they build um, efficiencies using existing stuff like restaurant waste. I'm Laura Fritz and I'm done speaking. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thank you so much for that example, Laura. Um, And that that's a really good tangible example like those are the types of things that we work on in at impact zero like we work with companies who are doing things like taking waste and turning it into basically turning it into money let's be honest um one example that we worked with in our first cohort of our accelerator program um and dan this might give you some inspiration because we run an accelerator as well um and you know software-based companies you said they're, they're tech you know, critical thinking, all of these things are critical pieces of building out a circular economy because we need tech solutions to, you know, track things or even build the technology that Laura's client would have been using to turn that waste into a resource. Um, But they can be so simple. Um, One project that we worked with is called CASE, and they take black plastic containers that people have, you know, received from restaurants, you know, all the black plastic with the clear, the clear lid. Um, she collects them in bins around the city. She sanitizes them and she sells them back to restaurants at 20 cents per container. So it's highly profitable and at the same time is free for consumers to use. And at the same time is diverting, she's diverted 60,000 black plastic containers since May um, from out of the waste management um, facilities in the cities because the cities have to pay to clear out the black plastic um, because they can't actually recycle it and folks try to recycle them all the time. So um, it's really good, um, Laura, that you have that example. And um, Dan, I know you know, with the accelerator, you can like integrate circularity into it and like teach people about how to think that way because there's so much business opportunity. Like there, you can, businesses actually perform a lot better when they integrate circular concepts into them. Um, one, one number that is really cool, um, I think it was Accenture did a report on, you know, like the financial, like business casing essentially for the circular economy. And by 2030, there's about 4.5 trillion US dollars that is currently trapped in in like theoretical potential for a circular economy um, that's around the world, so it's a global number. Um, but these are all potential profits of organizations and companies that currently are just deeming this. And Laura, you mentioned like dispose, like disposable, like the disposability of things. Um, by having that disposable mindset, you're not just throwing away the item that you're throwing away, but you're throwing away the potential revenue of that item, right? So if we think of that differently, there is such a huge benefit for businesses and for communities of essentially lost revenue. Um, and I think that's a like really fun thing to think about. Definitely. April, I see your mic is on. Did you want to contribute to the conversation? Oh, April may have stepped away. Dan, did you want to add to the conversation? I saw your mic. Coming. Yeah. So, yeah, thanks, Aaron. So uh, yeah, I, I assumed as much meaning, you know, in our accelerator, we could certainly promote circular economy uh, information and thinking. Um, you know, I'm going to throw a, 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 a difficult question out there. So we're going to build a brand new, um, a brand new city. Uh, and I think we're already struggling, for lack of a better term, to uh, Im- impose, uh, if that's the right word, a-, a sustainability component. How do you encourage, um, not compliance, but a participation in circular economy if that is not really the mindset or the will or interest of any particular developer or business for that matter? Mm-hmm. That's a really, really good question. Um, and so I would maybe ask what their hesitation is around it. Maybe it's just a lack of education and a lack of crunching the numbers and understanding the business case. Because 
Um, I mean, even just the idea of you saying that you're building a brand new city gets me so excited to think of like all the things that could exist in in a new city around circular economy. There's so much infrastructure potential. Um, I'm wondering if there's anything specifically that people fight against or maybe have like hesitancy towards. Yeah, so I'll remove circular economy and I'll call it new or different or other. So it, So I think human nature and business nature is um uh, i have a business model uh it's worked for me for decades Uh, i'm profitable um i'm not necessarily conscientious um that doesn't apply to anybody and i'm not picking anybody in particular but those could be some barriers and therefore uh because i maybe um on a more old school pure profit model versus maybe a more holistic socioeconomic model or whatever the right terminology is, triple P, triple bottom line. Um, I'm good, thanks. Good luck with your circular economy. We wish you well, and we're gonna keep doing what we're doing. So um, that, that I think it's a bit of a high level sweeping generalization, but I think those would be some of the issues. I'm Dan and I'm done speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can totally relate to that. I mean, I started a career in corporate banking. <laughs> I was the champion for circular economy. And it was like um, pulling teeth of getting people to even listen to me. So um, I think the biggest thing and the reason actually why Impact Zero, why our approach is to work with the innovators and the SMEs is to prove the business case. So it's completely undeniable that that's the better way of doing it. And honestly, like the industry and um, the innovation is so early that it's hard to have exact examples to point to. But I do want to give you one. Um, so if we think of um, cities who are, I mean, the, the incentive structures are kind of difficult to figure out. But um, for uh, mining, for example, say we have like a, a big mining city or a big mining um, community. Um, the so the circular version of mining for example would be something that we call urban mining which is instead of me going into you know some natural space ripping it up taking the materials from there i instead just like go into everybody's junk drawer and take all of that old technology and say hey this is completely useless sitting in here i'm going to take your gold i'm going to take your platinum i'm going to take all these other precious metals and use that as my um, my supply chain, essentially, is everybody's junk drawer. And um, there was a study done in China around this like urban mining concept. And they found that it's 13 times less expensive to urban mine precious metals than to mine raw metals and like from nature. So that is a very clear business case that if you can cut your costs and make it 13 times less expensive to get the material that you're going to sell at the same price, that's a very like clear, yes, we want to do this because, you know, we want to up our profits. And so to anyone who is not willing to like go on that innovation journey, like I think that's just like a typical business mistake because you know, they're just going to be left behind and all of these other circular businesses that are coming up that are proving that there's a more profitable or they can compete better on price. They're going to, you know, come way ahead of anyone else. So it's trying to find those tangible examples, which might be tricky in certain industries. Yeah, that's great. So I I couldn't agree more. So I I agree. I think case studies. Right. And then um, uh, maybe it's, I, I can't think of the example right now, but maybe it's uh, also encouraging competition, right? Encouraging the new younger startups that understand and get it. Sometimes it's easier, uh, <laughs> not a sustainable model. Sometimes it's easier to do a new build than it is to do a renovation. So maybe, maybe part of the opportunity is to find circular champions and, and figure out how to support them and see them grow and create competition and create demand for circular where the old guard starts valuing it because um, not because they're innovative, but because they have to. Um, I'm just suggesting that might be part of the strategy to to get uptake. Dan and Dunn speaking.
Absolutely. Yeah. And that's like the disruption is 100% what our approach is at least. Um, because, you know, otherwise the people who are stuck in their ways have no, no incentive to shift if there's no one that's kind of like threatening their market share of anything. So, um, it would actually be really interesting, Dan. I mean, I can think of so many companies or startups in Toronto who might be worth talking to because even this case example of the black plastic collection, um, while she has been doing this like very scrappy, literally like in a truck, driving around the city, picking up bags from retail partners all on her own. Um, she's had major, major recyclers come to her, like people who have been in the industry for tens of years. Um, and they call her and say, Hey, how can we take this material from you? How can we buy this? Because it's just pure gold to them. Um, because the traditional recycling streams, if you want to get like really nitty gritty in this one industry, um, all cities have recycling. However, it's highly inefficient and highly ineffective. So what we're kind of noticing is that if you take right now the sorting, for example, um, everyone puts it in like single stream blue bin, it goes into the recyclers, they sort it, they um, take out impurities, they you know, go through the rest of the process. But having it sorted once everything's in the one blue box is not effective at all. Um, and so case ex- cases example, when she takes everything up front, you know, she has clean black plastic. Um, it's basically like the purest quality of plastic that anyone could ask for as post-consumer plastic because it's not jumbled in with everything else. Um, the profits of recycling that and selling it as a pure plastic is way higher than if they had to put in all those resources as the recycling company to sort it. So instead of having a single stream blue box system, imagine if we had one that was like properly divided into plastics one through seven, um, and we're asking maybe the consumers or the individuals to do a little bit more work, but um, it saves the recyclers a lot of money and brings in the opportunity to have more of a reuse as well if we're even so specific in what we're collecting. so that's just one example of one industry. Can, can I share a, a slightly rumored dirty little secret? Sure. <laughs> My understanding is um, sometimes in some communities, all that recycling just gets put into landfill. And I don't think that's an untruth. Um, so I just thought I'd share that with you. I, I, I'm Don't get me wrong. I'm all for sustainability and circular economy. I just, uh, I just think we have our struggles. So imagine municipalities that have blue box programs aren't even following through on them because of either cost, uh, inability to deal with it, etc. And I, I don't know if anybody else knows anything about that, but um, I, it's an unconfirmed rumor, but uh, a good source. And I, I don't find it hard to believe. I will tell you, Dan, from my part of the world, it's also the same an unconformed rumor <laughs> and good for rubric because it, it, there are, I think, municipalities that I'm going to use the word struggle to manage the program effectively. Lara, did you want to add to the conversation as well? Yeah. So I wanted to put a little sort of context from a economic development standpoint on, on this conversation. So it talked about a project that um, I'd been involved in when I was part of the accounting firm. And just to put some context on it, um, to build a biodigester, it was a $28.5 million project. So if you think about that, $28.5 million um, going into your local economy, um, it was really exciting. It was a company called Greenway Energy. And they put in um, a whole bunch of different financing tools to make this project happen. New market tax credits, they received equity funding, um, they received a federal grant, as well as state funding to help make this project happen. Um, But the result of this biodigester was 500,000 gallons per day of wastewater Uh, from local food processors, and this is primarily cheese and dairy, no surprise, it was in Wisconsin, Um, but 500,000 gallons per day of wastewater um, was being disposed of through land spreading. And now, because of this biodigester, it's converting it to 3.2 megawatts of renewable energy, process heat, and fertilizer. So 
you know, here's this $28.5 million investment, but more importantly, it's also, you know, creating energy, heat and fertilizer for the community, um, which I think is really cool. So um, what does that mean? It means that the energy that's being produced by this biodigester can power 3,000 households. 3,000. It's pretty crazy. Um, but anyway, I just I thought I would give you an, a firm example with some numbers to kind of share the impact something like this can have. I'm Laura Fritz, and I'm done speaking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that because actually, Laura, you bring up a really, really good point. Um, first of all, the required financial upfront investment of projects like this are huge. Um, but then the kind of, I guess, unintended potentially or intended um, benefits that go beyond just, you know, the waste that you are now, you know, the food waste in that example, that you're not putting into landfill, not emitting methane emissions. Um, But then now this energy it's producing means that you also don't have to drill for, you know, oil, natural gas, whatever your source of energy is. Um, because you have found this alternative way of generating that. Um, So depending on whatever circular example you want to talk about, like obviously the waste is one major benefit, but I really also want to tie this back to the general idea of climate change, right? Because I think a lot of people often don't connect that materials that you can hold in your hand, everything has that carbon footprint. So um, there was a circularity gap report. Um, it was published, I think, in t- mid-2019, mid-2020. I don't know what year anything is anymore <laughs> with the pandemic. But um, the so this report stated that currently our global economy is about 8 to 9% circular. And if we were to double that, a level of circularity to, you know, 16 to 18% circular, we would reduce our carbon emissions by 40%. And in order to meet our climate uh, targets, we need to reduce emissions by 40 to 45%. So the circular economy, not that anything's like a silver bullet climate solution in terms of reducing our emissions, um, but it is a really, really huge um, carbon emissions reduction because now you don't have to drill, you don't have to transport things a million miles away. You don't have to um, put in the energy to manufacture something new instead of saying, hey, I have this item, who else needs it before I throw it away? Um, And you can just like pass it off to your neighbor (laughs) and like sharing economy is part of this too. So, I think, yeah, all the unintended benefits are also reducing the cost of living for people, because if you think of having to buy a bunch of new products that went through the entire manufacturing extraction process, it's very expensive for companies to offer. But um, the business case from like an individual's perspective is, okay. well, if you go to a thrift store or if you go to a secondhand store or if you just you know, get someone something from somebody who doesn't need it could potentially even be free, then that reduce the cost of living for individuals as well. And like, what does that do to your bigger community and the growth of your community's economy? Um, So that's just something else I wanted to point out. And also um, the concept of life cycle assessments as well, because sometimes if we want to be doing a certain project um, like the food waste one or Dan, anything that you're doing in in building the new city, um, you can actually, you can hire a life cycle assessment consultants and they will say from creation to destruction of this product or this project, um, this is the entire impact. So whether it's wastewater, whether it's emissions, whether it's, um, you know, materials waste or maybe labor impacts or whatever you want to be measuring they can say like this is the tangible impact of this product or of this um, project so that's something that i think laura you mentioned like having a lot of different areas of impact that go beyond emissions and go beyond just waste that also definitely need to be considered and having a really holistic study can help with that yeah laura I think, oh, that's clapping hands. <laughs> I was, yep, I was blotting, because you're right. I mean, it really doesn't go beyond just the uh, initial piece of it, but it's the long-term 
implications of that investment. You know, um, another example is for municipalities electrifying their buses. You know, at first, the upfront cost, I think, is a little scary to many communities. But when you sort of mon- you know, amateurize that across multiple years, that cost is really fairly ex- insignificant once you apply the savings on fuel and, and impact on the environment. So, you know, I think a lot of times we become focused on the short term um, versus the long term opportunity. I'm Laura Fitz and I'm done speaking. Mm-hmm. And that actually ties back to what Dan was saying as well, of getting other stakeholders on board. It's worth questioning, hey, like if your business case, if you say this is how business is run, um, what about if you continue like like business as usual for the next 10 years, the next 20 years or 30 years? Is it still going to be such an appealing business case? And chances are, especially in extractive industry, the answer is no. And executives at companies have a fiduciary duty to be looking out to the long term um, success of companies, right? So forcing people or pushing people to look beyond the like one, three, five year plans can really make something that maybe seems like a marginal discrepancy in sustainability today. It makes it very obviously something that needs to be addressed when you start looking at it at those like longer timelines. Um, Something else I wanted to ask about for folks is the involvement or engagement of government, business, and consumers in in your work, because everyone has a different role to play, right? So I'm just curious about engaging government, how people typically approach that, and um, how they can maybe bring government into the conversation about sustainability because they have climate targets and they have goals and they might be willing to give us some money to do that upfront financing. So has anyone experienced that in the past, trying to get funding for projects like this or green projects and using the story to support that? I know that um, in Ontario, I know that we have a few, uh, for example, the Ontario Centers of Excellence who, you know, I think they, they, focus on that they focused on a part of their delivery is you know, building up the green economy uh so i know that and i'm afraid dan's not here we have another speaker here uh, that joins us dan um who sort of talks about that advocation that ability to sort of help them see exactly what you're doing drawing those lines and parallels of you know this isn't just about greening the economy this is about innovation and about uh sort of building an, an economy from a different perspective so although i don't have one if you're looking for that answer, I would happily introduce you to Dan I don't, Ruby uh, off uh, after this chat, and I'm sure he can contribute to that. Um, I, maybe I'll open it up to the floor if any of our audience members or folks on stage have had experience lobbying or advocating for the for what uh, Aaron is sharing or asking. And to the, welcome, Ryan. Did you want to contribute? Yeah, Bob, I'll, I'll just jump in quickly because I have a quick uh, question for Aaron. Uh, the thing with the circular economy and uh, uh, is, is I always found it, it was very hard to measure the impact or the ROI, let's say, that you put on a certain project. Like, how do you measure the, the impact on the environment uh, from a certain project? Um, is there is there like a very tangible which measure, uh, you mean, measure the impact of that project or... Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, that's a really good question. And that is such, it's really complicated, right? Because um, especially, I mean, I don't think a lot of people think, I think my point is people should think about it more in that it's not, sustainability is not just about the trees, the water, the air, right? If we don't have communities that are in good financial positions, if we don't have communities that are embracing diversity and diversity of opinions and life experiences. Um, And if we don't have people who um, are connected communities as well, like that's all a recipe for disaster if we don't factor those things in. So in terms of measuring the impact on the environment, um, life cycle assessments, as I mentioned, are really good tools to use. And that has like a whole methodology behind it. Like there are like 12 categories, it's like waste, um water air uh emissions like it's a whole it's a whole um 
basically a huge report that you can get that will outline the impacts of doing one thing over another. It's basically a this or that report. Um, and the problem though with life cycle assessments is that it's not only very um, tedious to kind of put together, but it's also can be really expensive. So it's not very accessible, especially for smaller projects or projects that are just starting up. Um, however, life cycle assessments are like the best thing that we have so far. Um, one thing that also is like room for improvement in those assessments is actually like quantifying the community impact and the social impact of various projects. But at the same time, that's where maybe a life cycle assessment wouldn't come into play and just making sure that you have a really good level of diversity of the people who are involved in the project. So then they can anticipate certain impacts on different communities that maybe if you had a really homogenous group of people working on a project, they might not have um, considered. So yeah, in terms of like a scientific impact, life cycle assessments are where you want to go, albeit they're expensive. And then if you want to think of community social impacts, then I definitely encourage to have like a diverse team of folks who are working on it to anticipate the various impacts that could happen. That was a great question, Ryan. Thank you. So Aaron, when we think about when we think about talking to business leaders in a community about making that shift and making that change, uh, I think a few of us have sort of highlighted that there can be a bit of a high cost of acquisition. So um, what are your thoughts about, so I'm, I com I'm coming from this from two perspectives is, is I think if you're asking a business leader to completely, or not completely, but augment the way they're operating, which could have some upfront costs or some changes, you know, I, I could certainly see the barrier that maybe Dan ex has mentioned earlier. But then I think about what about succession? What about, you know, you have a business that's fairly prominent in the community that creates lots of jobs and perhaps that person's looking at retiring and we're looking at a succession plan. Ha, ha, is there ever been a discussion of, you know, talking to up and coming business owners or business leaders uh, about sort of making circular economy a part of their business plan? I don't know if you've ever seen that or is that sort of some of the conversation you're trying to lead as well? Yeah, thanks for that question. Um, that's definitely the succession planning is definitely why we work with the innovators and the people who are maybe like at the idea stage or like at the pre-seed stage of their companies because they're going to be the leaders of tomorrow, right? So we want to make sure um, that we're helping to educate people to even know how to think about this stuff because it is so new. Um, but to your question about um, having business leaders actually improving their way of operating, this is a really difficult question um, because sometimes, I mean, we all can probably think of a caricature of somebody who is set in their ways and does not want to change what they're doing. And those people definitely exist. And I'm not claiming that those people necessarily will ever change. Um, and so those are not necessarily the people that we could go to first, because I do believe that there is a huge proportion of business leaders who have the desire to do well. And even like political leaders have the desire to do better and they want to know. They just don't have like the technical, they either don't have the technical knowledge to know where to start. And so I actually work with those people. I also am a consultant and I help with companies who have basically already done the PR around having like a zero waste strategy, but they haven't actually put it together. So I help them put it together. Um, and that usually comes from leaders really wanting to make change. But then the other um, barrier that I often come up against is people that are maybe thinking of it as like they need to be perfect from day one, right? Like you don't need to transition, say a mining company to a fully circular urban mining company in a year that's not realistic that's not i mean shareholders wouldn't like that nobody would like that it's probably not feasible so um what i typically do with folks who are maybe interested and a little bit hesitant is to start by identifying the low-hanging fruit so a project like laura's food waste project just because that's a really great tangible example like, we're not going to say, hey, you need to invest millions of dollars in this thing that may or may not work because those people, that's too much of a risk that you're asking them to take. So usually I would say, OK, what is like low effort, low cost, high return that could potentially convince them like to take that first baby step? And then we take the next baby step and then we take the next baby step um, because like slowly people will see, OK, like, yes, 
either I believe that this is possible or even the other question would be, yes, okay, my customers actually do care about this because they need to make sure that like all the moving parts will go along with them on this change, right? So it's kind of like empathizing with why people are hesitant and not shying away from it and not like shaming people for it and just saying like, okay, what is it? And then we can figure out how to address it together. And oftentimes it's like, okay, what are the, what's the first baby step that you're um, keen to go forward with? And then we can grow from there. Um, and when you have high success in those first projects, say something like Case, like the Black Plastic Collector and Recycler, that's such a low cost, low effort program. And she's had such high impact that more people are getting on board and it's easier to convince them to take that next step once they've seen the proof of the first one. So I think that's a pretty general answer to like any change management, but like it definitely applies here too. Thank you. No, that's super, super helpful. So, so really as economic developers, what we, what we as a community want to keep an eye out is sort of the up and coming entrepreneurs, ones that are saying, uh, you know, they want to start or build something that has a circular economy component. So, uh, you know, one of the things I think a lot of ECTEV pros are mindful of is attracting businesses. So, you know, you've, you've stated a lot of things here. So this is more like a summary of all the things you've talked about, but you know, what are two or three or 10, like what are the things that we can start as economic development officers to, to, to promote or, or implement or create to start actually attracting circular economy entrepreneurs, whether they're just starting out uh, or whether they're already in full flow. Yeah. I love this question. Um, because first of all, I would say, stay connected with me <laughs> um, because Impact Zero, we have a network of currently 150 people who all really, really care about circular economy and want to do something about it. Some of them are closer to being the, at the point of being entrepreneurs. Others are maybe in the mulling over phase. Um, but I have like the number of projects that I have flying at me every day is insane. I don't know what to do with all of them. Um, and I think that's a really great partnership opportunity because, hey, if you need someone in a certain industry working on whether it's like textiles, whether it's in materials management on like a broader scale, like it doesn't matter kind of what specific industry it's in. Um, I truly believe that like Impact Zero is the best place to be linked up with these entrepreneurs. Um, and we can definitely connect you because um, when it comes to actually getting these startups off the ground, I mean, it's pretty obvious and I might not surprise anyone by saying we need funding, <laughs> we need support because, you know, being startups, that's always going to be a difficulty. But um, if it's a win-win situation, especially if it's something you have a client who really wants to solve and you can come with them with a really solid um, business that's already done their pilot, they already have proof of concept, they just need to get to the point of getting funding to scale, um, then I'm really, really happy to connect you guys with them because that's such a win for us because we want to see this stuff come to fruition. So if you come across someone with demand, um, I would definitely say come to us because I know how hard it is to find projects and to not even find you know, projects that claim to be green or, or circular, but then finding projects that truly are green and truly are circular. Um, I kind of see Impact Zero as like the filter for that to say, okay, yes, this person definitely is doing what they're saying that they're doing. Um, they have good intentions. We know them personally. We have a good relationship with them. Um, and then we can pass them along because I know it's hard to find, but I have like a massive list <laughs> of companies that are trying to do really cool things. I love that. Great, great, great answer. Uh, so then just to add on to that question, what are some other infrastructure considerations? So, you know, as economic development professionals, as we look at our community and mark down our assets, uh, what are assets we might have that would actually be attractive to this community? For me, it's always been broadband, but I imagine in a circular economy, that's not really necessary. So perhaps you can talk about infrastructure considerations that these businesses need to be effective in their community. Besides funding, you talked about funding. Are there other more sort of physical assets? Yeah. Um, something else that is really interesting about a, a circular business compared to a quote-unquote traditional business is the need to have really effective logistics because we really go from a product-based economy to a service-based economy. So... You know, if you think about um, even I'll use the case example again, just because it's easy. Um, 
you know, you have all these containers that now you're not really buying the containers, you're buying the use of the container because we need to get it from this person to that person to this business to that business for reuse. Um, and that's like one really specific example. Um, but having um, logistics that we can jump on to say, okay, say you have like some city that has really, really good logistics that are not just like point A to B, but then back point B to A, um, that would make it a lot easier for folks to offer their services because logistics are highly labor intensive, highly expensive. Um, and that's where a lot of people get tripped up. Um, but honestly, like if the best thing would be just to have collaborators that have a shared vision because um, the businesses that at least we work with, they're trying to become the infrastructure so we test with them consumer behavior, costing, like optimizing costs for everyone to see, like, how can we get the highest participation um, and the highest impact? So I would say, like, honestly, if there were just like community leaders that understood what the entrepreneurs were doing and um, could support and are willing to offer you know, the logistics or commercial space or um, storage space, especially storage tends to be a difficult, a difficult point as well. Um, because now that we're holding on to things and we're moving things, those are like the two biggest um, barriers for companies, right? Especially startups, like they don't want to have to have a fixed cost of like a warehouse, or they don't want to have to like buy a truck. Um, so even if like, someone just donating warehouse space to a startup could mean the difference between them getting their pilot in and them not. Um, and then eventually having that business come to fruition once they're willing to, or able to scale. Um, so yeah, I guess the top three would be anyone that has good logistics, uh, storage space, and the third one, I forget the third one, but yeah, that just storage space and logistics, I would say are like the two biggest ones. Amazing. Um, so ask you one last question be a bit of a last question before we end but before we do i wanted to invite lara to to sort of share now lara i know next wednesday we're still massaging out the title but what's happening this friday at uh, 3 p.m eastern oh i caught lara off guard that's my fault okay so this friday I oh, there... <laughs> sorry about that so this okay. friday we're talking which should be a great conversation. And that will be by Aliyah Abbas. Then on Wednesday, the 29th, we're going to be talking about reimagining public assets. So that should be another great conversation. So it looks like we've got good content. Our friends here, again, Fridays, 3 p.m. Eastern time and Wednesdays, noon Eastern time. Back to you, Bob. Thank you, Laura. That's great. Okay, Aaron. So I want to end on this question because, you know, as again, as active pros, one of the things I've experienced in my limited experience in, in economic development is, you know, really being mindful of, of the continuation of a local economy, mostly around youth, you know, so uh, you know, we might have youth come in for a post-secondary, we might lose our youth to other communities. And so as you were talking, I started thinking, and forgive me if this is a big assumption, but I started thinking that a lot of entrepreneurs who are leading the circular economy discussion are probably uh, perhaps younger in age. And so is this sort of one avenue of us addressing how are we bringing youth back to communities again? How are we revitalizing and repopulating younger, sorry, communities to bring in younger thinkers? Would creating an environment of circular economy entrepreneurship help do that? Um, yeah, that's actually an interesting question because I would definitely say, um, that the people who decide to become circular entrepreneurs, there are lots of factors at play, right? I mean, like, yeah, we have some students who are doing it as well, but if you think of new grads, like they don't always have the risk tolerance to be able to like quit it all and become an entrepreneur. Um, and time is also an issue. Um, so actually, the all of the businesses, with the exception of one in our accelerator, this cohort, are all actually um, a little bit older. I wouldn't call them youth. Um, but that said, in our first cohort, they were 100% youth. So um, I think it could be a combination of, you know, having the programs and the circular 
um, supports, I guess, in place for people who want to become circular entrepreneurs, but then also like, like just honestly, like, like supporting them financially because having grant programs or having like access to funding, because especially if we want to be encouraging a diverse set of youth, people who don't have, you know, their parents support or people that don't have, um, the financial means to just like stop doing everything or maybe who are working a bunch of jobs and don't have time to do this kind of stuff. Like we want to make sure that we're setting the, um, setting the scene for like literally anyone to come in because I think the best ideas are going to be from the most diverse set of people you can bring into play. So it doesn't just have to be youth. Just think of anyone who isn't typically, you know, when you think of entrepreneur, anyone who doesn't fit that demographic or that initial image, try to find out why they're not taking up the entrepreneurship scene and then solve why. I think the biggest thing and hopefully one of the biggest takeaways that you can get from this is like talking to communities, talking to people, asking them what they need. Because if we just assume and put solutions on people, and this is the approach we take from our accelerator as well, this is why we accelerate ideas that come from communities. And Impact Zero doesn't say we're going to build infrastructure for you because we need to talk to communities, ask them what they need. Why do you not you know, why do you buy plastic? Why do you use all these things that we don't, that we keep telling you not to use? Because people don't want to be the bad guy. People want to be the good guy. So like having those conversations and setting up the, whatever they say, like, I can only speak for the people that I've worked with in Toronto. Like, I don't know, like Ennisville, for example, Dan, like, I can't tell you why you don't have youth people, but maybe you can ask them and say, what's, what's the reason behind you guys not being able to participate? And then being able to solve, because I don't think that we can assume for anyone. <laughs> Thank you. Mario, did you want to really quick? Are we in the room? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm new to this, but Erin uh, semi saw her post on LinkedIn. So I actually have a startup, Thrive, which recruits and trains young people or young talent for kind of impact driven businesses. And um, maybe remind me the exact question you had just so i'm on topic it's it's uh really sort of the question of is is creating a circular economy supportive of entrepreneurs a great way to attract younger entrepreneurs but to, to aaron's point it really is more about attracting diversity than it is about entrepreneurs. okay yeah i mean i think I'll talk on the youth side because I don't have as much experience with the diversity scope in that space, but I would say with youth in terms of entrepreneurship, what I've experienced is a lot of students say they go to Ryerson or Toronto at UFT or something like that, and they start a startup, um, whether it's circular economy or climate change, etc. And they're really excited. And then they graduate and they're like, oh, I also need to be making money. So I think that's that's the challenge is that the, the with younger people, the, the motivation to kind of do circular economy or um, kind of make an impact is definitely there. But uh, sometimes they don't always have the motivation to keep because a startup, the challenge is, as some of you might know, is it takes some time to kind of get it off the ground and um, actually make money. And, you know, once you graduate, you're like, oh, you have to pay the bills, you know, you have to pay rent, etc. So I think that becomes the challenge for kind of young entrepreneurs after they graduate is to keep with their initiative. But I would say definitely younger generations are more interested in a zero uh, waste lifestyle um, and kind of promoting the circular economy. Again, with money, I think one challenge too is what is the price that you have to change to become zero waste? So, you know, if you buy at Bulk Barn or something like that, are those prices really competitive or are you paying more? Which then is also a challenge for kind of... Um, students and young professionals because their budgets are tighter so i think in terms of kind of connecting it with the economy the challenge is how can we make the circular economy really competitive to existing solutions because 
at least in my perspective, you know, if I go to the store, say, to buy groceries or something like that, you know, I, I have to kind of weigh the options of, okay, am I going to buy this product? It's maybe a few dollars more expensive, but it promotes the circular economy, or do I buy this one, which is like a dollar, two dollars, right? So I think those are just some thoughts. Really great insight. Thank you, Mario. So with that, sorry, folks, we're over time. Thank you so much, Aaron. Aaron, how can people best get in touch with you? The best way for this account. Yeah, I'll make this short and sweet. So our Please. website is, <laughs> is impactzero.ca. Uh, Instagram, LinkedIn, where you pretty much just search impact zero or impactzero.ca and you'll find all of us in all the places. <laughs> Aaron, thank you so much for contributing such great knowledge. And of course, thank you to all our audience members and those on stage who contributed to the conversation. And as always, thank you, Dan and Lara, for being here and, and, and helping us create this space for active officers to have great conversations. With that, I'm going to end the room in the next five seconds. And hopefully we'll see you all next fr this Friday sorry, at 3 p.m. Eastern. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks. Thanks, everybody. Thanks, everyone.